All right, Isaiah chapter number 58 this evening. Let's begin by reading the first three verses, and then I want to say a word about our notes, and we'll jump in to the teaching of God's Word tonight. begins like this, Isaiah 58, verse number 1. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Now we'll pause there for just a moment. Let me say a word about the uh, passages that we'll be covering tonight and the overall structure of our notes. So we began, after we looked at the historical portion in week number one, in looking at this sort of trilogy uh, of, of, of passages, uh, beginning in chapter 40 and ending in chapter number 66, that present to us a threefold view of the Savior. Now, I'm not going to say that everything is a direct picture of Jesus Christ, uh, but there is much in these chapters that is directed towards and is focused on the person of the Lord Jesus. And it sort of begins in, in chapter number 40 in talking about the servant of the Lord. And we see in those first nine chapters of, of this chunk of Scripture the serving Savior. And so God speaks of Israel as His servant, and yet we find there are many times they don't fulfill the criteria of a servant. And many times they don't fit the description of a servant that God gives in His Word. And so we find very readily in those chapters when he talks about his servant, he's talking about the perfect Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the representative of God's ideal for what he wanted for his people Israel. And so we see the serving Savior in those first nine chapters. In the next nine chapters, we see the suffering Savior. And we looked at that last week, how the Lord Jesus suffered in our stead, in our place. We could also call Him the sacrificial Savior and how that He procured salvation for mankind and how that the ministry of the Lord Jesus in His uh, first advent, in His earthly ministry, was uniquely one of bearing the sins and reproaches of the world at large, yes, but of Israel in particular. And so we looked at length at those chapters, particularly chapter 53. What a beautiful chapter in the Word of God that it is. But tonight I want us to look at the last nine chapters in this section and closing out the book of Isaiah. And I want us to look at the sovereign Savior. Now here's what I mean. He is viewed in these chapters as being Israel's king. Sometimes he is a king rejected. Sometimes he is a king that is longed for. Sometimes he is a king that is praised and rejoiced in. Sometimes he is a king that his reign and authority seems to be thwarted by the waywardness and woefulness of the people and other times to be triumphant and to be leading Israel to the destiny that God has appointed her to. But in all these chapters, we find this common theme of the Lord Jesus as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and as the King of the Jews. And so we'll look at three sort of sections this evening. From chapter 58 down to chapter number 60, we'll look at the king's wise working. And this is another panoramic view of God's dealings with Israel, like we looked at last week. And then in chapter 61 down to most of the way through chapter 63, we'll look at the king's coming kingdom. We'll look at the Lord Jesus as the rightful appointed king over Israel. And then the closing verses of chapter 63 down to the end of chapter 66, we'll look at the king's perfect plan and how that we'll be able to recline on that day when he's king and uh, crowned in glory and say that he hath done all things well. So the first section we'll look at tonight, the king's wise working. And as we said, another sort of sweeping vista, a panoramic view of God's plan for Israel at large. We could divide it into three sections correlating to the three chapters, chapters 58, 59, and 60. And chapter number 58 of the book of Isaiah is fascinating because it deals with a topic, very often neglected, but I believe it to be a biblical practice, the act of fasting. Oftentimes you'll hear people look at this passage, maybe not oftentimes, but when it's looked at, it will be used as a template for the biblical practice of fasting. Now I think that's certainly appropriate. I think if we want to learn what a biblical fast is and what the practice of fasting is, 
I think we can come to Isaiah 58, learn much rich truth about it. But it's important to notice this in the broader context. Why is Isaiah talking about fasting? I mean, it almost seems to pale in comparison to the, to the monumental themes that he's been dealing in. And in chapter 58, he, he zeroes in on the flaws in their manner of fasting. Why does he do that? Well, here's why I think he does that. Because there is no more palpable representation of a Jew's personal religion than that of the religious fast. You know, you stop and think about even their keeping of the Sabbath day today, and it is marked by various forms of fasts. And it was often in the Old Testament that when the people of God were wayward and when the country had lost its way, that a fast would be proclaimed. And it's a very deeply personal, more so than feasts, the fast was a personal element of the Jews' religion. And so the Lord looks at the way Israel is fasting. Or we might say this, He looks at their personal relationship with Him, the way they're worshiping Him, and He noticed a problem. I want you to notice the first thought here tonight. He, in chapter 58, points to the defect in Israel's religion. The first thing that we note in the verses that we have read is that there is something lacking in their religion. And what we notice is lacking is personal righteousness. He says that, He is to cry aloud, despair not, to lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Israel is shown to be be full of iniquity, full of sin, full of personal unrighteousness. But God acknowledges that they have an outward form of godliness. They have a form of religion. He says they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as a nation. Certainly Israel then and even today boasts themselves in their knowledge of Old Testament teaching or rabbinical teaching that has often replaced Old Testament teaching. And how that they forsook not the ordinance of their God. Uh, at that time and even today to a degree, they have a vestige of Old Testament religion. It's not legitimate. It doesn't look like what religion would have looked like when Moses came off of Mount Sinai. But the Lord points to the fact that they have a religious outward appearance. But then he notes that something is missing because they are an afflicted people. They are an oppressed people. They're not a people living in victory. And so it's like they look to God and say, Wherefore have we fasted? What's been the point of? And thou seest not. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul and thou takest no knowledge? In other words, they charge God and say, God, we've worshipped you right... But you have not protected us rightly. We have worshipped you rightly, but you have not provided for us rightly. And the Lord replies that the problem is that their fast is a religious ceremony lacking in any spiritual substance. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Time would fail us, but he goes on to catalog all of the problems with their form of religion. And here we could distill it down to one simple fact, that their religion had become a matter of rules-keeping and not personal righteousness. Now, I'll tell you this, man. If you're righteous, you're going to keep God's rules. But keeping God's rules does not make you righteous. It's possible to have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And so he points to the righteousness that was lacking in their religion. In other words, you have this form of godliness but it's not produced any real personal righteousness. And I would just point out that the book of Romans says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That by the works of, of, of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law never made a man righteous. Never had the ability to do so. Why? Because we are lawbreakers by nature. And so he points to the righteousness that was lacking. Then look down in verse number 8. After describing how they, if they fixed their personal righteousness, if they sought God in sincerity, then here's what he said he would do. He said, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. In other words, then your spirituality and your seeking of me will be productive. And thine health shall spread forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. Thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noon day. The Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought. 
And make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. They that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, pleasure, uh, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. Now, we read a lot of scripture there, but did you notice a theme that kept appearing? He says this, you'll call and I'll answer. I'll be present with you. I will work in your life. I will guide you, he says, day by day. You'll say, the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. All these phrases evoke the idea of personal relationship. What he's saying is this, you have this problem of sin in your life. He'll go on to say in chapter 59 that their sin had separated them from their God. He says, if you would let that sin be dealt with by me, then you would not only be righteous, but you would have a relationship with me. I would note this. He points to two things that are fundamental defects in Israel's religion. And that is the righteousness that was lacking, but number two, the relationship that was lacking. And this really hits at the heart of what was broken. And I hate to say broken about Old Testament worship. There was a time it was God's way. But what was lacking, what was incomplete, what was insufficient, and why we needed a Savior, and why we needed a new covenant, and a new and living way through the veil, that is to say His flesh, is because whatever the law could produce, it could not produce righteousness, and it could not provide a relationship. God looks and He says, the reason that I'm working in the midst of this nation, and the reason I'm doing these things is because what you have is not sufficient for what I desire for you to be. There is a defect in your religion. And by the way, let's note, just for uh, posterity's sake, I guess, that the defect was not on God, but rather it was on the people. It's not that God would not have made them righteous if they would have come to Him by faith. Abraham had righteousness imputed unto him by faith. And it's not that He wouldn't have had a relationship with them because Abraham was called the friend of God. You see, the problem was not a, a flaw in God or his system or his process or his way. The problem was in them that had perverted themselves and corrupted themselves from that way. So when we talk about the king's wise working, he points out the defect in Israel's religion. But then he points out to what he's going to do about it. We could call this the devising of Israel's redemption. I love this chapter. and I, the, Some of it will explain itself as we dig into it, but so let's just look at it. Notice verse number 1. In chapter number 59, verse number 1, he points to the separation of their sin. He says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither His ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies, they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. God says this about Israel, I have lost hope in them finding a way. I have lost hope in them becoming a righteous people. They are separated from me. Their sins they will not turn away from. And so God will go on to say that He must Himself step in and reconcile them unto Himself. He points to the separation of their sin. And by the way, this gets to the very heart of humanity's problem. Humanity's problem is this, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. God's the God of the living. Therefore, because of their sins and the deadness of their sins, they are separated from a living God. Someone must pierce through the veil of death to redeem those that are trapped in death to call them forth unto life. We have a beautiful picture, by the way, of that at Lazarus's tomb when the voice of Jesus goes through the stone covering of the tomb and pierces through the veil of death to be heard in the ears of a dead man to call him forth unto life. What a picture of what he's done for us. 
But he also likewise did this for Israel as a nation. Notice first off the separation of their sin. Notice number two, the results of their rebellion. And we're not going to cover every verse. I encourage you to, you know, at your own leisure, slow down, read it in fullness, in totality. But notice what had the fruit that had been born in their society as a result of their rebellion, their sin. Verse number 12. They cry out and they say this, For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. How could we summarize that lamentable cry of Israel? We could say it this way, our sin has got us in a mess that we don't know how to get out of. They say there's nothing we can do about it. Our sins are multiplied. We're not getting more righteous. We're getting less righteous. Certainly this was the case of Israel at the time that the Lord came in His first advent in His earthly ministry. Israel was not on a trajectory to become more righteous. They were degrading and debasing themselves daily. We find by the time they nail Christ to the cross, them siding with their Roman oppressors because they hate the Son of God that much. I mean, at Calvary, we see the very lowest that mankind can sink to. That's where Israel was at the time that the Lord found them. Covered over in their transgressions. Completely deceived and deceitful. Hypocrisy abounding. No care or concern for truth. It being fallen in the street. And equity not being able to enter into their society. Isaiah points to the separation of their sin and the results of their Rebellion, but then notice the answer of the Almighty. And I'm glad God has a solution when we have no solution. God has an answer when we only have questions. God has a solution when we only have problems. And so listen to how God responds to this. Verse 15. He says, Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. By the way, Certainly this could be said to be true of of individuals at any time in human history when sin has abounded. But I think there's a particular application to the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. You remember the question that Christ asked, uh, or that Pilate asked Christ? What is true? What is true? If you want to get to the heart of what Christ's interactions with the Pharisees centered on, it centered on the principle of truth. He was speaking to a generation that was uninterested in truth. They were interested in power. They were interested in prosperity. They were interested in position. But they were not interested in what was true. And they would twist and spin things and corrupt things to try to gain an upper hand. And and their whole religion was really based not upon answers but questions. It's how they maintain their power and their influence over the people. And here comes truth, walking amongst them, speaking truth. And they didn't know what to do with it. And it's very significant that standing there facing this, this Roman leader, this governor, Pontius Pilate, this man is pricked in his conscience that he is so steeped in a society that is uninterested in truth that he looks truth in the face and says, what is true? Truth had fallen in the streets. And the Lord looked at it and here's what he realized. He that departeth from evil. In other words, the righteous man is made a prey. And that's certainly true of the Lord Jesus. They hated Him for truth. They hated Him for righteousness. God looked at it. It displeased Him that there was no judgment. And He saw that there was no man. And wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore His arm... I love this. You remember who the arm of the Lord is. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. Remember back earlier in the book, the arm of the Lord is a title for the Lord Jesus. Therefore His arm brought salvation unto Him. And His righteousness... It sustained him. For he, the Lord Jesus, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly will he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. 
So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My Spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forever. God looked at mankind and saw that there was no faithfulness, that there was no righteousness, that there was no hope, that there was no help. And he said this, man can't rescue himself, so my arm will have to bring salvation unto me. My arm will have to satisfy and sustain me. I will do for man what man cannot do for himself. He did this, of course, on the cross of Calvary. But that leaves him not just as a suffering Savior, but as a crowned King and as a returning Redeemer. And we see these apocalyptic glimpses of him coming in power and in vengeance to exact righteousness on the earth. Because I want to remind you that part of God's plan of salvation is not just the personal pardon of the individual, but is also the redemption of creation under the authority of Christ himself. doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved, but it means that one day everybody's going to bow. One day everybody's going to have to confess. And so we see the answer of the Almighty here at the end of chapter number 59. And then when we come into chapter 60, you remember, we're talking about the king's wise work. He looks at Israel, who's the apple of his eye, by the way, who are the most righteous people in the sense of knowing who God is on the earth at that time, and he finds their form of religion to be wholly unacceptable. They have departed from true worship. So he devises a plan by himself, of himself, in himself, to procure salvation for mankind. And in chapter 60, we see the desire for Israel's restoration. God says, here's what I'm planning. Here's what I desire for Israel as a people. Three things are noted. Number one is the shining of their glory. Verse number one says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now we know who the Lord of light is. We know who is the light of the world. We know who is the true light that now shineth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it talks about thy light is come. Certainly a Jew would read that and see in it the fulfillment of their personal glory and their national glory. But we understand as Bible believers and as as believers in Jesus Christ that what Isaiah is pointing to is the fact that this consummation, this fulfillment of God's vision for Israel will only come when they have owned Christ as their King and as their Lord. He is the light of the Lord He is the express image of God's glory. He is the light that shines in darkness. And so what his desire is, is for the light of Christ to be a sanctifying element upon Israel as a nation and people. One day, by the way, that will be true because the Lamb will be the light of that city. One day the Gentiles will come to thy light. Not only Jews, but Gentiles likewise will come and bow the knee in Jerusalem before the crowned Lord of glory. He points to the shining of their glory. But then in verses 10 through 14, he points to the safety of their gates. What does he want for Israel? Well, he says this, The sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. You know, it's funny, Israel is one of the few places in the world that has a wall. Isn't that interesting? Uh, And that wall is closed right now. That gate is closed right now. Why is it closed? Well, there's probably a number of reasons. But one of the reasons it's closed, they're in a state of war right now. They have enemies that are set about them and they're besieging Gaza. And no doubt they're enemies seeking to afflict them. And closed gates are a, a picture of, of danger lying outside the walls. But God says there'll come a day that the gates of Jerusalem, they'll be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. They're not coming to invade, they're coming to worship. 
the, the crowned and enthroned King of glory. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. And they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. It's interesting, you know. A Jew will read this and see in it echoes of what they would call Zionism. The supremacy of Israel over the Gentile world peoples. But you know, we don't have half a Bible. We have a whole Bible. And we understand that just as the Lord Jesus is the servant of the Lord in the earlier chapters that we've looked at, just as we've seen that He is the sacrifice of the Lord in the chapters we looked at last week, we likewise know that He is the sovereign of the Lord as well. And we know that when it talks about these world leaders and and kingdoms coming and bowing, it's not that they come in sycophantic simpering to Israel as a people. It's that their king is enshrouded and, and, and enthroned in glory. And they're coming to bow before Him. In other words, the Lord says, when I reign from Zion, there'll be safety in your gates. And then look at verse 19. He talks about not only, what's his design? What is the king doing? What's his goal? Well, it's the shining of their glory, that they would not sit in darkness of self-righteousness, but in the light of the righteousness of Christ. It's the safety of their gates, that they wouldn't be afflicted, oppressed by enemies on every side, hated and despised, but that the world would clamor to worship at the feet of their king. And then finally, it's the splendor of their God. Chapter number 60, verse 19 says this, The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Thy people also shall be all righteous, They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. God says there will come a day when I will be the glory of Israel. I will sit enthroned there, and all of the world will wonder at the God that has brought all this to pass. You remember the overall point of these three chapters, the king's wise working. Well, did you know what the, did you notice what the, the Lord says there? He, he says that it, it would be him and his work, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. So this is God's desire and design for Israel. And he will one day in his time is the way he says it at the end of chapter 60, bring this all to pass. So those first three chapters of our text tonight, look at the king's wise working. But then in chapter 61, we begin to look at the king's coming kingdom. In other words, how would this be brought to pass? Or what would be the structure under which all this would be brought to realization? Well, there's three portions we're going to look at. Chapter 61, we see the annunciation of the king. Chapter 62, we see the anticipation of the king. And the beginning of chapter 63, we see the appearing of the king. Notice the first three verses of chapter 61. The Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. The first thing we see of this coming king is his majestic person. This is the voice of the Lord Jesus speaking. And you say, preacher, I'm not sure about that. Well, let me show you why I know that's true. Did you know that this very passage of Scripture is read by the Lord Jesus in the synagogue in Luke chapter number 4? The Bible says in Luke 4, 17, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. That's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and gave it again to the minister, and sat down. 
And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The Lord himself says, That's me that's being spoken of. And here the king is being announced in royal glory, his majestic person of all that he brings to those that will put themselves subject unto his authority and unto his throne. By the way, and I I can't move on without noticing, did you notice where the Lord quit reading? The Lord could have read on anywhere that he wanted to, but he ends in chapter 19 of Luke chapter, verse 19 of Luke chapter uh, 4 to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. When you look back in our text, In Isaiah chapter number 61 in verse number 2, we know that this prophecy goes on to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Why did the Lord stop there? Because knowing that the Jews would reject Him as King and that His kingdom would be postponed in its earthly realization only to be brought to consummation and fulfillment at the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus at the close of Daniel's 70th week, He stops there noting that His ministry in the first advent would be occupied with proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. To look to Israel and to say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your king is here, accept me, and I will bring about righteousness to the people. Sadly, they rejected him. But the rest of the prophecy will likewise be fulfilled. You say, when will it be fulfilled, preacher? Whenever they accept him as king. (laughs) The Bible says that at the close of the tribulation, they'll look on him whom they pierce when he appears in power and in glory, and a nation will be born in a day. They'll believe on him whom they have pierced, whom they have rejected, and the nation will turn to him in righteousness on the day of vengeance of our God, when he comes in power and in glory to defeat the armies of the Antichrist and to set up his glorious kingdom. So we see his majestic person noted in the first three verses. But then we see his magnificent plan for Israel in verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 says this, They shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. And I will direct their work in truth. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. God says, one day I will put Israel in the land. They're there now by a conglomerate of various global bureaucracies. And so their position there is pretty tenuous. But one day when the Lord gathers together His elect, one day when the Lord puts them into the land, they'll be there in safety. And they'll build the old waste places. They'll thrive. And for all the heartache that they have experienced, God shall reward them double. That's His magnificent plan for His people and for the people of His kingdom. But then notice verse number 10. He notes His marvelous promise. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me, clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Now, if you want my opinion, I'd say you're not interested in it, but I think that probably the voice speaking in verse 10 is the Lord Jesus. That He is the representative of Israel, is the inheritor of all these promises of God, and that Israel as a people, inasmuch as they turn to the Messiah, will partake in these things likewise, just as you and I as Gentiles partake in them by turning to Jesus Christ. But notice that God points to the fact that all these things that He has professed, and all these things that He has promised, will be brought perfectly to pass. We see the annunciation of the king. Then we see in chapter 62 the anticipation of the king. And we could call chapter number 62 the song of Israel's hope. Because here we have Israel crying out for God to bring these things to pass. And there's four thoughts here. I want you to notice them. In the first three verses, 
<coughs> excuse me, we see the conditions of Israel's hope. In other words, what will God bring to pass? Verse 1 says, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. Thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. God says, one day I will make Israel a crown unto me. One day I will set Israel like a jewel in a beautiful setting. One day I will issue forth righteousness from that throne, and Israel and the Jews shall be a people of righteousness. This is the hope that they're looking for. In chapter number 4, we see the comfort of Israel's hope. It says this, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. Hephzibah, by the way, means the Lord delights in her, or she is the delight of the Lord. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. He says, Israel will no more be a people cast out and illegitimate in the world, but they will own their God, their God will own them, and their relationship will be restored. And God says, don't be worried, don't be fearful. There'll come a day you'll not be forsaken any longer in this world. Verse number 6, we see the cry of Israel's hope. And notice this, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. And give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. This seems to be possibly the voice of the Lord, possibly the voice of Isaiah, possibly the voice of some unknown individual representative of Israel in her hope. But the thought is the same either way. God has commanded to set watchmen upon the walls. And here's what he's saying. Cry to me till I bring it to pass. Give me no rest till I establish this. Do this, cry unto me, look to me till I make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. We could summarize that in one simple phrase. God looks to Israel and says, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Don't ever quit looking to me. Don't ever quit hoping. Don't ever quit crying. Don't ever quit pleading. Don't ever quit praying. But look to me to bring all these things to pass. Verse 11, we see the confidence of Israel's hope. And the Lord doesn't leave them hanging, wondering whether He'll bring it to pass. It says, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out a city not forsaken. I love that phrase. The Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. God says, I'm never going to change my mind about my plans for Israel as a people. Though they are wayward, though they are wicked, though they are woeful, though they may break every promise they've ever made me, I'll not break a single promise I've made them. And I'm not changing my mind, God says. And they can have confidence in this promise. So we see the anticipation of the king in chapter 62. And then in chapter 63, we see the appearing of the king. I'll not say a lot about this, but I'll just note it very quickly and we'll move on. Because much of this, you'll already, it's on the face of it, what it's referencing. Verse number 1 of chapter 63. A figure is seen approaching for war with his vesture dipped in blood. Look at what it says. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to behold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. 
This is none other than the Lord, spoken of in Revelation 19, who's coming on a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood, with a name written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, and a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth to bring about the day of God's vengeance. We see the revelation of Jesus Christ in the first six verses. But then I want you to notice verses 7 through 10. You know, it's almost as though in this setting, in this scene, he knows the hearts of Israel will wonder why it took so long for their king to appear. Why they had to go through such affliction, through such suffering. No doubt they'll wonder why they had to be brought to the very brink of extinction before their Lord pierced the sky and delivered them. And so notice that not only the revelation of Jesus Christ is mentioned, but the reason for judgment on Israel is mentioned in this chapter. Verse 7 says this, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He hath bestowed on them according to His mercies and according to the multitude of His loving kindness. For He said, Surely they are My people, children that will not lie. So He was their Savior. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them, and He bare them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Therefore was He turned to be their enemy, and He fought against them. One of the questions I think that lives in the mind of those, uh, particularly in Israel, but even those as they study the Bible and the end times, is why does Israel have to go through what they have to go through? Why does God put them through that affliction and through that? If they're the apple of His eye, if He loves them, if He cares about them, if they're precious to Him, why does He put them through that? And the Lord answers that charge by saying, I did everything I could to spare you of this. I was loving to you. I was gentle with you. I was merciful to you. But still you rebelled against me. And the only way to purge that iniquity out of you as a people was to put you through this furnace of affliction. So here we see the King's coming kingdom. But then beginning in verse 15 of this chapter, I won't say it's a wholly different section, but there is a thought I want to draw into the last portion of our study tonight. We'll do our best to be swift. But this begins the portion that we'll call the king's perfect plan. Because here the king describes and catalogs how the way he hath done these things is perfect in every way. There's three portions that we'll note about the king's plan here. The first, at the end of chapter 63 and through chapter 64, is the confusion at the Lord's plan. Can I remind you that there will be some in Israel during Daniel's 70th week that will know the Lord, that will look to Him. I was talking to my father about this the other day, and you know the Bible in Matthew 24 describes that scene and how that there will be some that turn to the Lord in that time. Some that look to seek Him. The book of Revelation describes 144,000. They are witnesses of Jehovah. Thank the Lord they're not Jehovah's witnesses. Amen. Uh, 12,000 out of each of the tribes of Israel that will go about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and preaching the gospel of the kingdom throughout Israel. Well, where did they come from? Well, no doubt they saw the fierce affliction and turmoil of that day and began to seek in their Bible to find answers. And they found their way, no doubt they will, to the Pauline epistles. No doubt they'll see that the Messiah that Israel had rejected and crucified was their Lord of glory and their only hope. And they'll look to Him and believe on Him. One of the fixtures of Old Testament prophecy is there being a remnant of faithful in Israel. I trust that even to this day there are some uh, seed of Abraham according to the flesh that are likewise the seed of Abraham according to faith. Not all that are the seed of Abraham are the seed of Christ. But no doubt there are some, some remnant, some that know the Lord. Because God's always had a remnant unto Himself of His people. And so here in verse 15, it's almost like we hear the voice of the remnant. Those that have come to know the Lord through the tribulation, through reading the New Testament, through seeing those truths, crying out to God, wondering why these things that are happening are happening. If God's plan is perfect, why are they afflicted in this way? Notice first off the confusion of the remnant in verse 15. This is what they say. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of, of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me. Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father. 
Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. In other words, they say Israel at large doesn't accept what we know to be true about you. And and, and Abraham, meaning representative of the seed of, of Abraham after the flesh, they've cast us out, they've rejected, but we see that you're the true Messiah. You're our Father. Why aren't you answering us? O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways? Why is Israel this way, they say? And hardened our hearts from thy fear. Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Here we find a stark distinction between those during the tribulation that will be of the synagogue of Satan and of the synagogue of Christ. In other words, those that are Jews according to the flesh but reject their Messiah and that faithful remnant that the book of Revelation speaks of that through the turmoil and afflictions have come to seek the true God and have believed on Him. And we find this stark disparity and they're crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, why is it this way? Why is Israel's heart hardened? Why aren't you saving? Why are you allowing these things to happen? We see the confusion of the remnant in chapter 63, verses 15 through 19. In chapter 64, we see the cry of the remnant, verses 1 through 5. They say this, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. By the way, Paul quotes this in the New Testament. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. It's almost like the remnant is saying, Lord, when are you coming? When are you going to descend? When are you going to answer your adversaries? When are you going to purge the iniquity of Israel? When are you going to deliver those of us that are faithful? God, when? 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 In verses 6 through 9, we see the confession of the remnant. They say this, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind and have taken us away. There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us. Thou hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou art the potter. And we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth, very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Here we have the confession of the remnant. Sort of reminds me of Daniel in the book of Daniel that takes it upon him to make national confession for the people of Israel. Daniel, it's interesting because nowhere in the Bible is there really any clear indication of any personal shame or or stain or reproach in Daniel's life. And yet he offers one of the most gut-wrenching prayers of repentance and contrition in the entirety of the Bible. What's he doing? He's repenting on Israel's behalf. He's crying out as a Jew and saying, Lord, we as a nation, we've erred from you. We've gone astray from you. God, forgive us. God, remember your promises. God, deliver us. And here in the tribulation, we'll find the remnant making likewise confession and saying, Lord, we're unrighteous. We admit it. God, we're unholy. We admit it. God, we're unclean. We admit it. But we're looking to you to deliver us. We're looking to you to cleanse us. We're looking to you to save us. We are all thy people. Here we see... The uh, uh, Let me grab it here. Hold on, give me one moment. The confusion at the Lord's plan. But then in chapter 65, we begin to see the clarifying of the Lord's plan. It's almost like the Lord answers and says, Well, let me explain to you what's happening and why I've done things the way I've done them. Notice a few truths here in chapter number 65. First, he points to his strange people. Now, I don't just mean members of Walridge Baptist Church when I say that. But rather, he points to the fact that he, in his perfect providential plan, has sought not just to save Jews, but to save Gentiles that will come to him by faith. And he says this in verse 1, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. 
I've spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remaineth among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels, which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. It's almost like the Lord is saying to the remnant, they're saying, Lord, why, why, why? And the Lord said, here's why. Here's why. Because when I called unto Israel, they didn't answer. They rebelled. They turned away. And so I turned unto a people that would receive me. And I've called out a people unto my name from the Gentiles. He mentions his strange people. Number two, he mentions his saving process. Verse number six, he says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. In other words, he says, I have to exact their iniquity. I have to purge them. But he says, I'll not destroy them altogether. I love this. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. Boy, t- time would fail me, and I know I've got to hasten. But it's like the Lord looks at Israel and says, they are wild grapes, a wayward people gone astray. But then He looks within that vine, and He sees the cluster, the person of the Lord Jesus. And He says, there's a blessing in that cluster. And I can from that bring forth the new wine of new life and of righteousness. He says, and I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob. And out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. And mine elect shall inherit. Remember who the elect is? Chapter number, what was it? 41, 42. Hey, my servant, mine elect. He says, mine elect shall inherit it. And my servants shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold of flocks. And the valley of Achor, a place for the herds to lie down in. For my people that have sought. He says, I looked at Israel and they were all together wayward. But there was one Jew that was righteous. (laughs) And that was the Lord Jesus. And from Him I will bring forth the new wine of righteousness in my people. He will be my my heir. He will be the elect that inherits all of these promises. And inasmuch as they'll turn to Him, they'll find the fulfillment of all these things. We see His saving process. Then in verses uh, 9 and 10, we've already read it, we see His sure promise. And then in the closing verses, we see His sovereign purpose. Why is He doing all this? Well, he says this, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But ye shall be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her nor the voice of crying. The king says, When I'm done, Israel will be far better off than she ever has been in the past. He says that he will create a new rejoicing in them. A new song he'll give unto them. Not only to create a new rejoicing, but the closing verses of this chapter to create a new reality. He says, There shall be no more fence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call I will answer, and while they are speaking I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, saith the Lord. He says it's going to be a new kingdom, it's going to be a new reality, it's going to be a new world, and when the king is done, all the world will rejoice for what he's done. So we see the clarifying of the Lord's plan. And finally, and I'll be done, the consummation of the Lord's plan in chapter 66. Now there's four thoughts that the Lord points to. And he says, here's what I'm bringing to pass. He notes, number one, the true desire of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne 
and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. The Lord says, I'm not interested in buildings, not interested in temples, not interested in plots of land. He said, all these things are a means to the end. And what I really desire is to take up residence in the human heart. He says, even then, that there were some that had believed on him. And in verse 5, he encourages them. He says, hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Undoubtedly, this has some application to us as believers in Christ in the church age and the fact that we are on the right side, not of history, but of eternity. And I'd rather be on the right side of eternity than on the right side of history. But obviously, this is speaking distinctly to that remnant that though they have been rejected and cast out by Israel writ large, one day, even Israel will have to confess that those that accepted Christ were the true believers in the God of Israel. So we see the true desire of the Lord. And then we see the tremendous deliverance that God will produce and will bring this forth through. Verse 7 says, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Ladies, wouldn't it be wonderful if it worked that way? (laughs) Who hath heard such a thing? I hate to burst your bubble. Who hath heard such a thing, the Lord said? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? God likens the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of of Daniel. We sometimes call it the seven-year tribulation period to a birth. And he says, every birth has pain. Every birth brings forth uh, life, and he says, do you think I would bring Israel to this place of great trial and affliction and suffering and agony and not bring forth new life for them as a nation? And he says that a nation will be born in a day. A nation will be born at one time. He says, shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? He says, at one time a new people will be born. Not Israel simply after the flesh, not in Israel, Israel simply after her geopolitical uh, boundaries, but rather Israel after righteousness. This will be brought to pass at the close of Daniel's 70th week when the Lord comes in glory. He speaks of the tremendous deliverance that He'll bring forth. Then He speaks of the terrible destruction of the unrighteous. Verse 15, He says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. He says when all this is brought to pass, there will be true righteousness in the human heart. There will be a righteous nation that has been born, but there will also be the overthrowing and defeating of the the, the, the enemies of, of the true God. I like verses 22 through 24 because it paints a scene. And I want to read it and mention a word about it and then we'll close in prayer. He says in verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth, And look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. Their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. (laughs) Isn't it sort of strange for such a glorious book to end with such a dismal verse? I mean, I don't know about you. I I, I don't, I've never walked into anybody's house and seen a, a wall hanging cross stitching of Isaiah 66, 24. Never seen it before. Why does the prophet end with seemingly such a morbid description? Here's what he's wanting to describe. He's wanting to describe how that when the consummation of God's plan is brought to pass, there will be a total defeat of every opposing force of the Lord. He says, creation will be new and will be perfect before me. Israel will be restored and will be set in a right condition with me. All of humanity will come to worship me week by week. 
And you'll be able to go out and look on the fields of destruction and see those that have stood against the Lord. I can't explain everything about chapter 24. Is it figuratively speaking of the fact that those that have rejected the Lord will be burning in a lake of fire and, and the testimony of, of their loss to God, if we could say it that way, their defeat by God will resound in testimony throughout eternity? I don't know. I mean, I, I could venture a guess. But the thought and the theme of these three verses is that when it's all said and done, God's going to be the winner. And those that have believed in the Lord will be on the winning side. Remember what the theme of Isaiah has been. God is my salvation. And when we close the book of of Isaiah, here's the final word we say about it. That at the end, God is one. And God has brought salvation to His people. And God's people are on the winning side. Man, I'm glad we're on the winning side of this thing. Aren't you?